And yes, Betty, thank you for reminding us that our God is able. So many times you go through, if you're honest with yourself, you go through the course of a week and you sense how unable you are. And it's a great reminder for us. Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Matthew chapter 24, where we had our scripture reading a moment ago. I'd like to read verse 3 once again for us. So if you'll find Matthew 24, verse 3, we'll read that verse, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll be looking into God's word here for a little while here this morning. Matthew 24, verse number 3, this one says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So you can find a question there, right? And for our purposes this morning and for the title of this message, I've just sort of shortened it a little bit to the first several words. When shall these things be? When shall these things be? We'll be looking at that. Let's have first a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your wonderful kindness. Uh, You have been with us in this past week. And Lord, we have only you to thank for helping us over our trials, our problems, our inabilities, as we were reminded a moment ago. And Lord, even as we come to the worship service this morning, we're so grateful for the privilege to be here, but conscious once again that we're unable to really accomplish spiritual good uh, in our own lives or in the lives of others without your presence, power, and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray, Father, that you will take control of our service, that you will just uh, look down upon each person here this morning. We know you love us. We know you know us as individuals. We know you know our needs, and we all have them. It's just that sometimes we don't even know the extent of them, and sometimes other folks around us don't know them, but they're there, and we're conscious of that. And we just desire to present to you this morning uh, an open heart and an open mind, and we pray, too, to be uh, absolved of human infirmity and distraction and and problems that would keep us from paying attention or, or finding the blessing that, that you desire to impart to us in the service today. Now, Father, for your people, I pray that you would give us, again, attentive spirits. Should we have anyone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I pray, Father, you would just allow through the course of this message the gospel to be made plain and that the Spirit will be always working in this place to draw men and women and boys and girls to the lovely Savior whose precious wounds shed that efficacious blood in order that we might be cleansed from our sin. Thank you that, although we're reminded of this, the the song asks us the question, what can wash away my sin? We're so grateful that we know the answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you that we can be here this morning, and if that has happened in our lives, we can know it, we can sense it, we can be glad of it. And our hearts are always burdened, Lord, if we have any that don't know it, that you will uh, draw them to yourself, convince them in their hearts, of those things that they need. And again, Lord, we just give you the praise and the honor and the glory. Pray your blessing in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. They asked him this, of course, is the series we've been working on for some time. I think we're making reasonable progress. Uh, We haven't missed too many Sundays with this, actually, but we're nearing the end, not totally there, but nearing the end of Matthew's gospel. So, Uh, We have a few more here, and if time and opportunity present themselves, we'll then go and pick up the ones that maybe weren't in Matthew and see what we find there. There will be some additional ones if time and opportunity are available to do that. But this morning we have another question, and we've moved forward from Matthew 22 now to Matthew 24, and this is another question asked by the disciples. So you see it in verse number 3. We took the trouble to reread that. Uh, towards the beginning of the verse, tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? The question is really understandable when you consider the context. Uh, Once again, do you recognize Matthew 24? It goes with Matthew 25. Do you know what's in those two chapters? Well, this would be our Lord's most extensive discourse on prophetic things. In other words, all in one sitting that we have recorded in the Bible. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And the reason for that, of course, is that it tells us that they're on the Mount of Olives and he took the opportunity to sit down. His disciples approached him with this question. But what provoked the question? Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 23 and look right towards the end of the verse, you find that he's been speaking of judgment. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, 
How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Look at this next statement. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And of course, as they have this respite, and as, by the way, we're still on Tuesday of the Passion Week. That's where we are, and that's where this happens. Tuesday is obviously an extremely busy day, because think about what we've already looked at here and not to recount everything again that happens on the day, but we've had this obvious confrontation that runs over the course of Matthew 22, those three questions that we took a message each to look at there. And if you, if you actually go and study um, what, what unfolds on the respective days of Holy Week, Passion Week, whatever you want to call it, Tuesday is kind of the busy day. And so in the afternoon then, after some of these things have subsided, there is this opportunity now for the disciples to broach Jesus privately with a question because as they heard him talk about these things. Now, speaking of judgment, and by the way, then look at verse number two because they take the trouble to say to Jesus, well, look at the temple, look at all these buildings. And really, I mean, it's, this is not uncommon. I mean, if we had been living in that day, I mean, the Herodian temple, the rebuilt temple that Herod, uh, Herod had uh, accomplished there was really quite a marvel. Um, we don't have time to go into that, but the, the, just the stones themselves that were quarried and brought to that place to build that temple were incredible. And uh, many of them are still in place. You can see that. The Western Wall, people are familiar with that. You can go there and see those stones. And it's still something of a question how they got stones that big and that heavy up on the Temple Mount because they didn't have some of the heavy machinery. But you could also ask how they were able to build the pyramids. And I think you come away with the fact, really, this is for free, all right, but I think you come away with the fact, really, that um, ancient man, if you want to refer to him that way, was not the typical picture of someone in a cave somewhere swinging a club all around, like uh, some of the theories of evolution when you see those progressions, <laughs> you know, all the way from a monkey up to a man, you, you get that impression that I don't think it was quite that way. In fact, when you read the Bible, you find out that, that man is incredibly intelligent. And uh, what else would we expect? Man was created in the image and likeness of God. Well, anyway, that was a digression, but they point the buildings out to Jesus, and then he makes this statement. And we're still talking about judgment and what provokes the question. And he says, Verily I say unto you, verse 2, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, if somebody told you that about Let's just take the Washington uh, memorials. If you were taking someone through Washington and you were there and you looked at the Washington Monument and you were proudly showing someone that Washington Monument and then you point out to them the Capitol building and then you point out to them the uh, Lincoln Memorial where President Trump, uh, Trump stood when he had this Fourth of July uh, speech. And you'd be proud of those things, right? I mean, that, that's the natural thing. And you'd be showing the. And then the person says to you, you know what? Days are coming soon when not one of these things will be standing. Well, you'd be curious about that. Wouldn't you? I think I would take the trouble, just as the disciples did, to ask Jesus what he had in mind and when this was going to take place. Now, I will say this. And again, we don't have time to go into all the details of this because we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. But the more specific answer to the question that's at the front part of this, look at verse 3 again. Tell us when shall these things be? If they're asking about when it is that those buildings are going to be destroyed, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time with that in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, two days earlier was when he spent time with that. When he came on Sunday, we call that the triumphal entry, You'll find Jesus talking about this very thing in Luke chapter 19 about the Romans are going to come, and we know that did happen in AD 70. So you get more of an answer to that part of the question in what Jesus had said two days earlier, and now the focus of attention turns to something else. And you'll notice actually that when you look at this, it seems like they're asking three questions. Tell us when uh, shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And if you look at the last two questions, they're really thinking of the same thing. In their minds, these ideas coalesce. When, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And by the way, I might point out that um, we've kind of gotten in our day to where we take that expression, the end of the world, and people, people who are in 
just normal society, if they think of that expression, they're thinking of some type of doomsday, some type of Armageddon, right? If people talk about the end of the world. That's not what this means here because the word world here is the same word that's used in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And you've read the marginal reading on that there where it says even to the consummation of the age because the word world here is the word age. And there's a, a contrast in this that you can see if you run down later in the chapter um, and you look at verse, let's see what verse I want in that. Look at verse, um, uh, is it 14? Yes. Um, no, there's another word down here with world in it. I'm sorry, I'm not, my mind is not uh, hitting on that right at the moment. But uh, that's the word that you have in John 3.16 where it's cosmos. It's the, it's the created order. That's not the word that you have in this verse. Cosmos is not what's here. It's the age. So what they're asking is, in their minds, when Jesus returns, they've heard him talk about that. That's the consummation of the age. That's when all these things are going to take place. And we do know that when Christ returns the second time, there will be all of these judgments. And so in their mind, that was what the question was. When are you coming back? When are all these judgments going to take place? And that's the question that the Lord really spends uh, time with here. So this morning, what I'd like to do is um, use three words to kind of help us move through this. Um, I would like to basically say that here's the heartbeat of this sermon. When you start talking about prophetic subjects, the end of the world, like people think about it, the second coming, interest in those subjects is not just confined to the church, is it? I mean, there are people out there who kind of have heard these things, and if you start talking about these things, you can sometimes generate, and that's why oftentimes in the past, uh, great prophetic conferences would be held. You draw a lot of people in with that. Sometimes when we have special meetings in Huntington, if the evangelist was the type who said, you know, are there any particular messages that you want preached during the week, any particular emphases that you want during the week, oftentimes I would ask on Thursday night for us to have a prophecy night or something like that uh, because I knew that that is of broad interest to a lot of people. The question is this. About those things that we're asking, are we curious or serious? Just take a moment to ponder that. Is it just curiosity? Do we just want information so we can kind of decide what we'll do with it or if we'll do anything with it at all? Or are we interested because truth of that nature is designed to have an impact on our lives And the fact that Jesus is coming and the fact that Jesus is going to deal with this world, that's a truth in the Bible that's never given to us just to satisfy idle curiosity. It's always a truth that's given to us to provoke us to certain living and action in our lives. God is not in the business of just satisfying idle curiosity. God gives us his truth because he wants his truth to have an impact on our lives. And so that's what I'm after here in the message this morning. I pose that question to you. Are we serious about these things if we pose that question? If we have interest in when is the Lord's return and these types of things, is it because we just have idle curiosity or is it because we really want to respond to the answers that we might find in the Bible to those truths? So here are three things that we'll move down through. First, I'd like to ask in reference to the Lord's return, when, then, we're going to ask the question, what? In other words, when he does return, what is going to happen? And finally, we're going to ask the question, how, which is, how should we respond to the truth? And that's really the heartbeat of this sermon. So we have to move through the first points as quickly as we can. When? Well, of course, that's what they asked, right? That's where they started. When? When shall these things be? Everybody wants to know when. That's the $64,000 question. That's what everyone wants to know. When is the Lord coming back? Or when is the end of the world? And the thing about that is, is the Lord hasn't left us helpless or clueless in respect to that question. But the problem is that there's a tremendous amount of misinformation. This is the first thing that Jesus brings up. Notice verse number four. And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. Down in verse 11, look at it again. And many false prophets shall rise 
and shall deceive many. And that has characterized this church age. There have been deceivers and there will continue to be deceivers. There will be people who are misinformed and there will be people who make merchandise because they know people are interested in the subject of the Lord's return. I gave you some examples of this recently in a different message. I mentioned Edgar Wiesenot, the retired NASA engineer who wrote the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Remember that? I gave you that. Of course, that didn't work out too well, did it? And then I mentioned to you about Harold Camping of Family Radio. And, and, and I don't know the condition of either of the hearts of these men. I just know that uh, they ended up deceiving many people, whether that was their intention or not. They ended up deceiving many people. But you remember, he set the date of Harold Camping, that is, of March 21, 2011, for the return of the Lord. There were billboards all over the place. There were a lot of notoriety from the press was focused on this. Well, I thought I'd give you a couple more this morning because they're educational. It's, it's just sometimes really nice to, to hear where some of this stuff comes from. You ever hear the name William Miller? Okay, I don't see too many people nodding their heads one way or another. Ever heard anybody use the expression, the Millerites? I'm not talking about the drink now. Well, I'll tell you who William Miller was. William Miller is the man that the Seventh-day Adventists point to as being their founder. Now, William Miller was what they called a millennial dawnist. And what that meant was is that he believed that he knew when Christ was going to come back. And so he predicted the date of March 21, 1843. When that didn't prove to work out, he repredicted the date of October 22, 1844. Well, it generated a lot of laughing in the press, even in the day, because these Millerites who took that seriously and were deceived by that, they, why they were called millennial dawnists is they, they actually, many of them, and this happened with, uh, with Harold Camping's thing too, there were people who went out and sold their possessions and all this kind of stuff. So there were people who did that here. And then they actually went out and got ascension robes. They were white robes. And they were seen to go out on, the, on that day and stand there on the hill, the mountain, whatever it was, and they were waiting to be snatched up. <laughs> well, I don't know what they did with the ascension robes after the day was over, but they didn't go up. That's William Miller. Have you ever heard of a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell? That one getting any recognition. I see one person, maybe. Have you ever heard of Russellism? <laughs> yes, you have and just don't know it. Because Charles Taze Russell was the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And Charles Taze Russell picked up on this millennial dawnism of William Miller. And that was, he saw that that generated a lot of interest, and he picked up on that. He claimed that Christ would return in 1874, but just in the air. That's why no one noticed. And then he went on to predict that Armageddon was going to occur in the year 1914. Well, there was an, uh, an Armageddon of sorts in that year, but not the one he was talking about, right? Because that's the year the Great War started. But do you see how over time how so many people have done this kind of thing? It's the very thing, and it, it has characterized the church age. It's the very thing that the Lord warned would take place. And the answer to the question, when, is we don't know. And the problem is, is that we don't like the answer. But we have to abide by what the Lord tells us. So let's look at verse 36. As this Olivet Discourse unfolds, Jesus brings this point to bear. But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, verse 36, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In Mark's gospel, he was even more explicit and said, not even the Son of Man. In other words, on the earth and in the voluntary limitations that he imposed on himself, he didn't know himself as he spoke those words. Obviously, he knows now. <laughs> you, know, you get what I'm saying. He's sitting by the right hand of the Father. There is no self-imposed limitation on his divine glories and knowledge and so that's how you have to see that but he's pretty clear about what he says verse 44 if that 36 wasn't clear he says therefore be also ready for in such an hour as ye think not the son of man cometh 
Well, think about this for a minute. If we know Jesus is coming, about, coming back, but we don't know when, can you already think of how that might be designed to impact your life? Sure you can, because if we know that Jesus could come at any time, if we know there's not 50 years or 100 years that still has to happen or some great event that has to happen uh, before Jesus can come back, then our response to that is, is that we have to be ready. We have to live each day as if it could be the day of the Lord's return. This is the whole idea of how this truth is meant to impact our lives. So what the Lord does in the next uh number of verses is he goes on to describe the general character of this age. Look at verses five through seven. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled for all things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now it's really important that you notice that phrase, the end is not yet, because that was their question. What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the consummation of the age? Jesus said, it's not yet. So when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and diseases and all these different things, those are not signs because, strictly speaking, the rapture has no signs. Do you understand what I'm saying? I know you've been taught this over the years, so you can nod your head and you get extra credit if you nod your head. Sure, you know that, technically speaking, Specifically speaking, for the rapture itself, there are no signs. Now, for the second coming of Christ in glory, yes. And we're going to get to that. But it's, it's, we just have to sort of watch this. Some of the songs we sing tend to get that a little bollocksed and confused. But Jesus says the end is not yet. And yet, it's, in fact, he says specifically in verse number 8, these are just birth pangs. Look at verse 8. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. That's a word in Greek that means birth pangs, and ladies sure understand that. Man, I remember our first one, great day in the morning. What was it, 11 or something at night, or was it earlier than that, you told me? Huh? Anyway, it was in the night. I said, well, what do we do? We go to the hospital or whatever? No, not yet. No, okay. Well, we went in the next morning. James did not make his appearance until five in the afternoon. I mean, that was a long haul. But the next one came and my wife said to me, I, th I think we better go to the hospital. I said, okay. I was thinking about how James was. And I, I said, sure, better go to the hospital. And I said, um, good, I'll get up and take a shower and, and we'll get to, no, I mean now. And Ruth came rather quickly. By the way, she's back in Honduras. Thank you for your prayers safely. All is well. Anyway, she came quickly. Well, so is it going to be long or short? Don't know. But birth pangs signal an event that's coming, but it may not necessarily be right now. And this is what he's saying. These things characterize the age. We don't really know how long the age is going to be. They didn't either. Jesus was preparing them. There are certainly overtones here that there's going to be some elapse of time. There's going to be some time go by. So let's go to our second question, which is what? So what's going to happen when Christ returns? We'll drop down to verse number 15, because once you get to verse 15, now we're at something that's actually documentable. In other words, not just, I don't, I don't mean to use a word that sounds negative, not vague things. Not things like famines and pestilences and earthquakes and so forth. I mean, they're not vague when they happen, but what I mean is those are, those are things the Lord says you can expect those types of things across, across the age. And if you think about it, that's been true. Uh, there have been seasons of disease. There have been seasons of weather disturbances, all these types of things. We just had Barry. Does that mean Jesus is coming tomorrow? No. See what I'm saying? And we've had this kind of thing. But when you get to verse number 15, look what Christ says. When therefore ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Well, now you're at something that you can recognize and say, okay. Because that's a prediction from Daniel 9.27. You remember the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks? This is that 70th week, that last seven-year period that we understand to be the tribulation period. This is an event that's going to happen right in the middle of that period. 
This is the 42 months or 1260 days or three and a half years that we find referred to in, in the prophecies of Scripture, that it's broken into two parts. And in the middle, when Antichrist goes and breaks his covenant of peace with the nation of Israel, if you'll pardon the expression, it's then that all hell breaks loose on the earth because God's judgments, those judgments that we, that we read about in the book of the Revelation, the, the seal judgments, the bold trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, these things begin to happen on the earth, and it's all climaxed by Jesus' second coming. But if you're a believer on the earth, and there will be many believers on the earth, not those who are raptured out, those who have been won. There will be many believers on the earth, and if you're a believer on the earth in those days, and you know something about the scriptures, that's why it says, whoso readeth, let him understand. You see that event take place, you know, all right. The event, the, the second coming of Christ is soon. It's three and a half years, roughly speaking, away. Um, if we go a little further, the great tribulation follows, verse number 21. You'll, you'll have to pardon me for the, the brief survey, but it says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the whole world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So there you have the idea of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of that seven-year period. Jesus says this, it's unprecedented, and so it shall be. Those judgments, when you read about them in the book of the Revelation, they're unprecedented. And... The earth has never seen anything like this. Um, and so it is then that this is climaxed. Verse number 29, there will also be a celestial upheaval and signs. Immediately after the tribulation, verse 29, of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars uh, shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Jesus says, you won't be able to mistake that. It will absolutely be unmistakable. No deceiver, no nothing will keep you from understanding what that event is, because look at verse 27, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So these are the things that are going to take place just before and at the return of the Lord. And so Jesus begins to make application of this. What about professing believers? How should we respond to this? Verse 42, watch therefore for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. Now if you think about how flexible that is, that's true for us, it's true for them. Isn't that right? It's true for us now, for sure. But there's still a sense in which it's true if you're a believer living on the earth during the tribulation period, you don't know exactly when. You may have certain things that portend the coming of the Lord. And as Jesus said, when you hear the parable of the fig tree, when you see it put forth its leaves, you know it's near, even at the door. Yes, we're not left clueless. We're not left without instruction. But we want to get to this last word because time is getting away. As Lee said, there's a problem with the clock. Every Sunday morning at 10.30, it goes into a different gear. You ever notice that? Anyway, so you have this last question, which is how? How should we respond to this? And the Lord tells three parables. This is really the heart of what I want to talk about. But as you see, there's a lot of lead-up material to this. So the Lord uses three parables, and they're two professing believers. doesn't matter whether you think of the church age or the tribulation period. They're two professing believers. And once you can see that, then you don't stumble all over trying to figure out, well, is this the rapture? Is this the return in glory? The rapture really isn't in view, technically speaking, in the Olivet Discourse. It's the return of the Lord to the earth. That's what they ask about. That's what he answers. And that's really what's under discussion. But the application is still there for us, and that's the genius of this. Why should we be surprised? Christ is a master teacher. The first of the parables I like to call the parable of the stewards, verse 45 of chapter 24. So Jesus says this, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? But it becomes clear that this man is a steward, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, that's a steward, to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But... 
And if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do you have? You have professing believers. Now please get this. There is a difference between profession and possession. Right? There's a lot of people who claim to be Christians. We don't see the heart. We're just fruit inspectors. The Lord says, by their fruit shall ye know them. But there's a lot of people who profess to be Christians, and they, there's not much to back their profession up. There's not a whole lot you can see in the life that really, really tends to back up and make their, their profession credible. We still can't see the heart. It's just they don't have any proof to offer. They don't have really a credible profession. Some of those people are really not in true possession. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Some of those people profess to know the Lord, but they have never really understood what it is to be born again. I bet there's a lot of people here this morning who can remember a time in your life that was true. It was true in my life. Hey, look, I told you before, I grew up in church. We, we, were, we were nominal Christians, as the expression goes. We, we went to a, another denominational church. That was my parents' habit. We went every Sunday morning. We heard the minister. We went, even went to Sunday school. In that church, we learned catechism uh, and, and all kinds of things. I could have quoted you John 3.16. In fact, I, I told you before, if you had come to the door, as I've done many times since, knocked on the door, and I were the one to answer, and you had asked me the question, are you a Christian? I would have looked at you like, now you've got to remember, this is 100 years ago. But I would have kind of looked at you like, what do you mean am I a Christian? Of course, this is a Christian nation, right? Well, we've kind of become disabused of that idea now, but back when I was 12, 13 years old, 14 years old, that, that's how I thought. I think a lot of people used to think that way. But we never heard the gospel preached in that church. Never. You'd hear about Jesus. You'd hear general religious instruction. But does someone stand up there in the pulpit and say, you must be born again? And point out that it's not just knowing about Jesus. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And you need to know that he's your personal Savior. It's not good enough for the man next door to be saved. You have to be saved. God deals with us as individuals. I never heard anything like that. I just understood John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I said, well, of course I believe. I didn't understand that Belief means that you end up coming to the Lord because of the conviction of sins and confessing your sins and asking him to save you. I didn't understand all those things. No one had ever told me that before. Though there are many people who are professors, but not possessors. There are two servants here, two kinds of stewards. One's wise, one's he called evil, one's called a hypocrite. This man is not a Christian. It's clear from the description when you get to the end of this, verse number 20, or 50, what is it, 51? And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the, he, Jesus calls him a hypocrite. One of those ones Ron Hamilton's talking about, the hypocriter. Nobody likes to be called a hypocrite, but he says there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not something that's happening to believers. That's something that's happening to people who profess but never knew. This parable of the stewards is a lesson in faithfulness. It's a warning to the untrue. The man who said, my Lord delays his coming. I don't have to be impacted by this truth. Was untrue. He wasn't true to his calling as a steward. He abused his position. He mistreated his fellow servants. He was drunken. He had no evidence in his life to back up the fact that he was really a possessor. No wonder there's going to be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
if there are people who have lulled themselves into a false belief, if there are people who have been deceived, we come next to the parable of the ten virgins. Let's look at this one. I, there's more I want to say, but there's not time. So, you know this parable? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto, this is the second one, ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil in them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. Well, that's exactly what's happened, right? The bridegroom's tarried. While the bridegroom tarried, you see where I'm talking about the hints of, of, of an expanse of time because he didn't come when they thought. They all went to sleep. He's a little late, at least according to what they were thinking. Then all those virgins arose. Someone said, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Verse 6, Then all those virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. Foolish said unto the wise, Give, us, give unto us of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest we, there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for themselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in. To, with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the virgins, other virgins, these are the foolish, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, what's that say? I know you not. These are not believers. These are professors. They're all virgins. What's going on here is, in the customs of the day, the bridegroom would go to the house of the bride first. These people are waiting for the bride to come, or to the bridegroom to come back, accompanied by the bride, to his house, which would, of course, become now her house, where there would be a feast, a great celebration. These people are invited to this, and they're along the way waiting. All ten go out. They're all professors, right? All ten take lamps. The only difference is that five of them only take whatever's in the lamp. Five of them take what's in the lamp and some extra. What were they? They were prepared. They didn't know whether he'd be a long time or a little time. And they were prepared. That's the lesson here is preparedness. And the warning is to those who are unprepared. So it came late. It was longer than they thought. Jesus tarrying has been longer than Paul thought too. <laughs> been longer than a lot of people thought. But there's going to be a cry one day. Behold the bridegroom cometh. How do I really know I'm prepared? Well, if we take the oil as it so often is in the scriptures, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, you really see the difference between the professor and the possessor because the possessor has the Holy Spirit in his heart. He's got the oil. And you say, how can you know that? I mean, can you, can you know that? Yeah, you really can. Let me make it as practical as I can. If you live with somebody, you know that, don't you? We got a lot of married folks here this morning. You got to all be. And those who aren't, better listen. Or even if you're going to college, if you're living with roommates, you're going to know it. And you're going to know the difference between just having your own room, nobody else around. And you can, if your mom doesn't get after you, you can throw your socks on the floor. And you can go a week without tidying your room or whatever until finally she comes in and looks at it and says, get this room cleaned up. But when you go off to college, you might have one roommate, two roommates. I've had as many as four certain semesters, five in a room. Can you think of that? Well, guess what? They're all different. And when you're living with people, you know that. And when you're living with people, since everyone's different, you have to make certain accommodations if you're going to what? Get along. So is it that difficult for us to comprehend that if, if you are a true believer and you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. 
you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart, he's going to kind of let you know the kind of life he wants you to live. He's going to make you uncomfortable when you're not living the kind of life that you know you should live. And the way to be prepared is to know that you're a genuine believer and to have the Holy Spirit in your heart, which is the true gift of every person who knows Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Finally, there's the parable of the talents. It's a lesson in readiness. Let's look at this and we'll close. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man, verse 14, traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods, and unto the one he gave five talents. This is money, not abilities, but money. We'll find that out later in the story. It will become clear. Then he, uh, to another he gave two, and to another one, and to every man according to his individual ability, and straightway took his journey. So ability only enters in in that he decides one guy is a little more capable, so he gives him more money. One guy maybe is a little bit less capable, so he gives him a little bit less money. Another guy gives a little bit less money yet. That's the only place ability really enters into this. It's money he's giving. There to use his money. There to use his money to advance his cause and to do his business. Verse number 19. 16, then he that received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that received the two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, see the hint? After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. There, there will be a day of reckoning. That's what this is all about. And so he that received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained five beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The guy that's the six-cylinder Christian and not the V8 that got the two talents, He's not disenfranchised because he was a six-cylinder instead of an eight-cylinder. He gets the same commendation. Aren't you glad? And that really makes me glad because I'm not, I know I'm not in a class with some people that I talk about and think about. I'm not in a class with Charles Spurgeon. I'm not in a class with the Apostle Paul. I'm not in a class with George Whitfield. But I won't be held to that standard. I'll be held to the standard of what was given me to invest that, to use that. So he says to the same, this guy that had the two, he also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, well done. There's no difference. The same words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee rule over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Okay, now it's going to shift gears dramatically. These two first guys, they're genuine. They're faithful. But the other guy, the third guy, then he which received the one talent came, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there hath that that is thine. Gave it back to him. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore, he said he used his own words against him. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers and then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury or interest. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath the 10 talents and then drop down a verse and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that is not a true believer. That is not the fate of true believers. That is not the fate even of true believers who haven't lived for the Lord as they always should have. You see where I'm trying to come from with this? It's the difference between profession and possession. The lesson of the one is faithfulness. The lesson of the second is preparedness. And the lesson of this is readiness. And it's a warning to the unwilling. This man was unwilling. 
the excuse he gives doesn't hold up to the light of day, which is why the Lord is able to take his own words. Well, if you really believed that I was a hard and an austere man, you would have at the very least taken my money down and put it in a CD or a money market or something. No, it was just unimportant to you. Doing my business was unimportant to you. Your life was what was important to you. Folks, let me reach out to you today. I'm not trying to be hard. But you know there are folks like that. The claims of Christ are unimportant to them. They want to live their life. They want to go their way. Let me reach out to you this morning. Let your heart be tender. Please understand that if you persist in that, if you don't open your heart to Christ, if you don't hear his words, if you don't receive him as your personal savior, you can persist in that kind of life, but there's coming a day of reckoning. And it will come to light as you stand before the Lord. The opportunities that you had, because even in this church service, you've got one this morning. The opportunities that you've had to become not just a professor, but a possessor, and you squandered them simply because, no, you have other things more important to you. No wonder, he says, they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Lord called this man wicked. He could see through his excuse. You know, teachers, I think we have at least one in here. We have more than one, Brother Holt, but somebody else was a teacher, right? A couple of them back here. Well, you know, teachers are like mothers. and Oh, yes, right over here. Got lots of teachers. Teachers are a bit like mothers. They have a canny way of... You always think that mothers have eyes in the back of their head and men don't. Well, anyway, there was a teacher and she had high school boys. She had four boys in her class. It got to be the springtime of the year and they just had the itch. I mean, you know, after winter and they just had the spring fever and they couldn't resist. So they cut class one morning to go out and who knows what fish or whatever they did. And these four boys showed up at school after lunch and they saw the teacher and they said to her, oh, we're sorry we couldn't make it in this morning. Our, the car had a flat tire. She smiled and just said, oh, that's unfortunate. Well, it's also good too because really we only had one thing this morning that you missed that you've really got to make up. All we had was a quiz. Oh, they said, sure, give us the sat down, got out their half sheet of paper or whatever. And she said, um, here's the question. There's only one question. Which tire? <laughs> well, I'm sure there were some red faces when that one happened, but not nearly what's going to be when we stand before the Lord one day and he's the canniest of all. He sees everything. And it becomes clear to us that we haven't done anything but lived a lie and made excuses. So I'll go back to the question before I close the message this morning. Are we simply curious about Bible truth and specifically truth about the future? Or are we serious? Because if we're serious, here's how we should respond. And here's how we'll know if there's a genuineness. The, the Holy Spirit will prompt us. We will understand the need to be faithful. We will understand the need to be prepared. And we will understand the need to be ready. And even though we've probably heard these things many times before, still you get into a place where the preaching of God's Word is going on and the Holy Spirit is working and we're all prompted. We're all prompted to ask ourselves that question. Am I, I wonder, have I done my best for Jesus when He has done so much for me? If there isn't that, then maybe we need to search our hearts. And if there is that, then maybe the Lord wants us to make an adjustment. Maybe the Lord feels that we have strayed a little bit from the path and we haven't been as faithful as we could have. We aren't as prepared as we should be. We aren't as ready as we should be. 
time maybe to talk to the Lord about that this morning. I'm going to pray. Then I'd like to give you just a few moments to talk to the Lord on your own. And Kathy, why don't you come? Our song this morning is uh, page 274. Could you just, whenever you're comfortable up there at the piano, could you just play quietly? And we'll get to the song in just a few moments. But right now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful truth. I'm just thinking and thanking you today for people that cared enough to talk to me. When I was a boy, when I didn't understand these things, when I'd never really heard about the claims of Christ and how to really respond to them, I thank you for those that cared enough to ask, for those who cared enough to keep asking until finally your work had done its work in my heart and you brought me to that place of surrender and submission. Father, I pray now that if we have any here this morning that need to give a few moments just to talk to you, they can honestly say in their hearts that they know you, but you've spoken to them, Lord, about a little lack of faithfulness. Just help them, Lord, to come to a a place of doing business with you as you may be leading them in their hearts this morning. And if we have anybody here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, oh, blessed Holy Spirit, please begin and bring to fruition soon a process of conviction that will draw that person savingly, genuinely to you. Thank you for the privilege of being your servant. Now bless us, Lord, as we take just a few moments to meditate on what we've heard. Mm -hmm.